you have your Bibles this morning, please join me in the book of 1 John. This is where we're going to be working our way through for the next few weeks. We'll be in 1 John uh, chapter 1, and we'll be taking a look, a look at verses 5 through uh, the end of the chapter. Um, I don't think there's much you can do to improve a Reese's peanut butter cup. I had a great conversation last night with a wonderful person, and we were talking about the merits of Reese's peanut butter cups. And the bottom line is, I think that if we received a million-dollar grant from a Hershey company and said, Josh, I want you to take River Church, all expenses paid, to the tropical destination of your choice for a week and sit on the beach, we're going to ask you this one question. Improve the peanut butter cup. I think we'd waste a million bucks. I think we'd have a great time. But I think we could sit around all week having all of our expenses paid in the sunny destination of our choice, and none of us would come up with a good idea on how to improve the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. It's just that good. I think we would come up with variations. Some of us might say, well, you know, we all know that a refrigerated Reese's Peanut Butter Cup is better than one that comes right off the shelf. But we didn't make a change to the Peanut Butter Cup itself. And honestly, Hershey has already messed it enough, and we don't like any of those versions. We like the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. million bucks, a week in a sunny tropical destination, all of our best thinking together. Bottom line is you can't improve on what's already complete. You can't improve on what is already basically the perfect candy. Just one exception. You can share it. The only thing better than a peanut butter cup is sharing a Reese's peanut butter cup with someone that also enjoys Reese's peanut butter cups. And if they don't enjoy Reese's peanut butter cups, or if they've never had a Reese's peanut butter cup, being an evangelist of the gospel of peanut butter cups is a good thing. Like, we would all agree that even if they have a peanut allergy, I would make the case they should at least try it. It's worth the trip to the ER. Maybe I crossed the line. What I'm saying is, the big idea behind what John is writing in 1 John is that how does God become more complete? How does the joy and the fellowship that God experienced before the world began, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how do you improve on that? Because John says that our fellowship makes the joy of God and our joy complete. We're not going to come up with any brilliant ideas on how to change a peanut butter cup, and we're not going to come up with any brilliant ideas on how to make God more godly. But we would all agree that the more we share peanut butter cups and the more we share the experience of God's fellowship, that that would be an improvement. That is how you actually complete or perfect something that is already complete or perfect. John is going to describe what this fellowship looks like, and so for the next few moments this morning, we're going to take a look at the biblical text to see what this fellowship actually looks like, knowing that we are wrestling with this question, how do you improve the peanut butter cup, or how do you strengthen or grow or complete or perfect the joy of God through fellowship? Chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. John is saying that at the root of our fellowship,
fellowship. This is the basic premise that God is God, that God is perfect, that he is pure, that he is holy, that he has nothing to do. Sin does not have anything to do with God at all. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we say we love Reese's Camper Cups but never eat one, you don't actually know what you're talking about. If you say you love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups but never buy one to share, you're not a part of the fellowship of the Peanut Butter Cups. And John is saying that if we say God has anything to do with sin, then we don't know what we're talking about. Or if we ourselves are walking in darkness, if we are lying and not practicing the truth, then we don't actually have fellowship with God. What John is saying is that there is a conforming culture to this fellowship with God. That the more time we spend with God and with each other, it begins to look in a certain way. There is something that is true of every pilot I have ever known. Pilots are men, pilots are women, pilots are young, pilots are old. Pilots do not litter. We actually have a special word for litter. It's called FOD, F-O-D, foreign object debris. We take litter really, really seriously. Pilots do not throw their gum wrappers on the ramp. If you want to shut an airport down, the fastest way to do it is to take a bag of trash and throw it on the runway. The whole place is shut down. Why? Litter kills airplanes. It gets sucked into the engine. The engines are finely tuned pieces of equipment, and they don't burn trash. And so pilots don't litter. If a pilot is chewing a piece of gum, the wrapper goes in his pocket. If the pilot is dealing with a piece of paper that is flapping around, he's going to secure it. You cannot be seriously considered. If you walk onto a ramp, dress as a pilot, and start throwing garbage out, every other pilot's going to know you ain't actually a pilot. Security will be called. There is a conforming culture in the world of aviation, and it has to do with garbage. You don't throw it on the ground. People get hurt when you do. If you're a pastor, there is a conforming culture as a pastor. Uh, there are a number of different kinds of people that are pastors, but you can always tell a guy that went to seminary because he's going to say this about the Bible. Please take a look with me in the text. What? What does he mean, the text? Why doesn't he just say the Bible? Because when guys say, take a look at the text, or the text says, it means they've studied the original languages. And they know that what they have in front of them is a text or a translation of the original text. And they've really spent a lot of time. And so people that take the Bible seriously, mostly pastors, there's a conforming culture. Pastors, it's not unusual for them, especially ones who have studied the original languages, to say, would you refer to the text with me? It's very unlikely that anyone other than a pastor would refer to the text that way. If you come across a pastor that just says, oh, it's the Bible, it doesn't really matter what it says, <laughs> he's probably not a pastor, or at least not one that you should trust. Sailors don't pull ropes, they haul lines. Ropes are on land, and they get pulled. Lines are on a ship, they get hauled. If you come across a sailor, and he says, hey, pull on that rope, and he's referring to a line on a ship, he's a bad sailor. All sailors know that it's a line, because lines have jobs, and lines are treated with respect, and they get hauled. Ropes, we step on, and we pull them, and we do all kinds of crazy things with 
and you tie knots in them that you can never get undone. You never do that with a line on a ship and you haul it. And so sailors will say, hey, would you haul that line? They're never going to say, pull that rope. Hikers always wear two pairs of socks. They have thick, wool, fuzzy ones and thin, really, ones made out of magical material. Silk and stuff. You can always tell a hiker because even when they're wearing their sneakers going to the grocery store, they have two pairs of socks on. That's just weird, but they're a hiker. They know that one pair of socks is to remove sweat, and the other pair of socks is to minimize chafing and to add comfort to the boot. If a person says that they are a hiker and they just wear willy-nilly thick socks with no liners, they're joking. Don't follow them on a hike. Your feet will get blistered. There's a conforming culture. If you're a Patriots fan, you're obnoxious. There is a conforming culture amongst Patriots fans. Even before they were good, we were obnoxious. Like the Patriots were known for being obnoxious fans, even when they were terrible. If you are a polite Patriots fan, every other Patriots fan knows you're not a Patriots fan, that you're secretly a Jets fan or a Dolphins fan or a nice team. Because nice people like those teams. Nice people don't like the Patriots. There is a conforming culture of arrogance if you're a Patriots fan. There is a conforming culture to the gospel. We do not walk in darkness. We don't tell lies and we don't live into lifestyle. This is what God is saying. There is a conforming culture to this fellowship with God. You cannot say that we walk with God, we hang out with God, we fellowship with God, and live a lifestyle that is known for sin. It's like a littering pilot. It's like a Bible. It's like a pastor who's willy-nilly with the Bible and doesn't respect it. It's like a hiker wearing one pair of socks. It's like a polite Patriots fan. And it's like a sailor pulling on a rope. Doesn't make sense. They're actually not telling the truth. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, we are liars. Hey, John, could you make that any more clear? I'm a little confused about what you mean right there. Very simple to interpret. A very powerful text. There is a power of the gospel that is conforming in that we are very serious about sin and that we avoid it. Verse seven. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. As men and women of faith, we have we are very, very serious about something that makes the joy of our fellowship possible. It's like a bittersweet kind of a thing. There's like a tension there. Our fellowship is defined by joy. But the fellowship is possible because of something very, very serious, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, which as we walk in fellowship with each other and with God, cleanses us of all sin. So as men and women of faith, we are very serious about confession of sin and faith in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the ultimate proof that God is and that he cares. Because Jesus actually died, that God came, he saw, and he conquered, and he proved it the shedding of the blood of his son. We're very, very serious about that, and it facilitates great joy of our fellowship. This is what John is saying here. Pilots are serious about trash because they destroy aircraft. Hikers are serious about their socks because they, if you don't have the right socks, you're going to get a blister. Pastors are serious about the Bible because they believe that it is the very word of God 
is a text. It is a love letter written from God himself. Sailors are very serious about lines because those lines allow them to control the ship that they may reach their destination. And Pat fans, well, they're just arrogant. There's no way I can kind of clean that up. They're just arrogant because we're born that way. But the bottom line is, we are all very serious about these various things. And as men and women of faith, we are very serious about the blood of Jesus because of the joy. Pilots are serious about trash because of the joy of flying. Pastors are serious about the Word of God because of the joy of preaching. Sailors are very serious about lines because of the joy of sailing. Hikers are very serious about blisters and socks because of the joy of hiking. And Patriots fans are very serious about the Patriots because of the joy of dominating everyone who threatens us at any time in history ever. We're very serious about this because of the joy that it facilitates. We are very serious about confessing our sins and placing our faith in the blood of Jesus because of the joy of the fellowship and of having our sins cleansed from us as we place our faith in Jesus. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I want to just briefly bring to our attention that our consciences do a great job of making us feel guilty, but they don't do a great job of actually convicting us of sin. Let me say that again. Our consciences do a great job of making us feel guilty, but they don't do a great job of convicting us of sin. Example, you're at a, uh, your favorite restaurant that does not have automatic sliding doors. It's the 99. And, and you make a special pilgrimage to the one in Norwich or the one in uh, Killingly because the Red Sox just won and uh, your kids are going to eat for free. And so you're going to the 99. The doors are not automatic sliding doors there. You actually have to hold the door open. And on your way out, after celebrating the Red Sox victory and having your free meal for your kids when you bought an entree, uh, you're jubilant and not really paying attention. Maybe you're on your phone. Maybe you're Facebooking or Instagramming your wonderful dinner that you just had at the 99. And on the way out, you allow the door to whack into a single mom who's got a babe in a stroller and one in her arms. You didn't have to go there. And, and, and the stroller gets hit by the weight of the door. And you notice it in your peripheral vision. What does your conscience do immediately? You feel terrible. Like, wow, I just whacked a single mom with two babies. Like, I feel like a terrible person. Is that sin? No. I mean, not unless you're some kind of wacko that likes to purposely whack into single moms with two kids at the 99 restaurant, and that's a really odd way to sin. It's probably just an accident. But what does your conscience do? It goes on overdrive. And you feel like a terrible person. And you offer up an apology immediately. But maybe this is something that you do consistently, that you never hold the door open for other people because you're never considering other people and where they're at. Is that a sin? Yes. But we don't feel guilty about that. In fact, we don't even process that. So our our consciences do a great job of convicting us of rudeness. Our consciences do a great job of convicting us of impolite behavior. It's probably not sin. But it's a much different thing when God's Spirit convicts us of sin. And so walking in the light means actually confessing sin, not rudeness. Right? Last night, we were at Utopia, passing out Reese's Peanut Butter Cups because we love this community. And uh, I 
vehicles to go get some more stuff to give out to more kids, and we came back into Veterans Memorial Park, and there was no parking anywhere. I mean, the streets were lined both sides, like it was almost only wide enough for one car to get down Haskins Avenue, and, you know, people were trying to bring their kids there to get candy, and there were, you know, thousands of people walking around. It, it's the biggest event that we see in New York City in the course of a year. And so, being one of the vendors, and being a part-time employee of the town of Griswold, I managed the juvenile review board, so I'm kicking at the wrestling town to deal with me and my team. It comes with certain privileges, which means I moved the cone that's blocking the driveway into Veterans Memorial Park, and we park in the grass closer to where we're going to be. Well, the guy that was behind us on Ashland Avenue was beeping and swearing because we weren't going fast enough for him. And then when I had the audacity to move the cone and then park inside the park, he thought I was a special flavor of uniform. And, and he made it very clear with great vulgarity, yeah, your pastor got cussed out real good last night at an outreach because I was a special flavor of uniform. Did he sin? He was rude. Should you talk that way? No. Does the Bible say that you shouldn't use coarse language and jesting? It does say that. So you can make the case. My wife is like, not only did he sin, he's going to hell. <laughs> she is also a special flavor of unicorn, and I appreciate that about her. I would make the case that he was having a bad day. And what's the, so maybe later on, his conscience smote him. He's like, man, I shouldn't have cussed that guy. Uh, you know, I shouldn't have been so angry at him. But what's the actual sin? The anger that motivates the cussing. Because I don't care how much candy you collected with your kids last night, he's not feeling better about himself as a person until he confesses the heart and the mind that has all this anger in it. It wasn't a question of whether or not you're going to get free candy. It was a question of whether or not you're going to have to wait 30 seconds for the free candy or not. And so the, the sin wasn't so much the fact that he cussed me out. That was rude. And he shouldn't have done it. And maybe his conscience smote him later. But the question is, did the Holy Spirit convict him of the heart that was filled with those kinds of thoughts? Did he carry those thoughts home? Does he treat his own family that way? Now that's sin. And so our consciences are quick to convict us of uh, societal impoliteness. But they don't do a great job of sinful convictions. Our consciences do not do this naturally. And so that means that our fellowship is going to look a certain way. How does our fellowship look so that we are sure that we're not just apologizing for being rude, but we're actually crossing the line and confessing our sin? Because there's an important difference there, right? Continuing in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so I would like to conclude our time together this morning by offering us three different practical ways that we can define our fellowship so that we know that we are conforming to the culture of what it means to be in relationship with God and with each other. First, here's something that we know. With confession comes cleansing. Christian
becomes cleansing. When we confess our sins, when we process past rude behavior into actual sinful things of the heart and the mind, the things that are unspoken are typically sinful, whereas sometimes the things that are spoken aren't necessarily. You see that? Our actions and attitudes and behaviors in our heart and our mind is where we cross the line to sin more often than in just rude behaviors. And we know that with confession of these things, we receive cleansing. And so this is something that we do that is counterintuitive, but it defines our culture as Christians, our conforming culture. We confess with others to heal. You see, when it comes to confession, we approach confession with great joy. Something very serious that brings us great joy. And so it makes us a little different. We look like a hiker at Target with two socks. We're not on a natural hike, but we're still a hiker. We look like a pilot who's picking up garbage in, in the middle school bathroom, even though it's not a runway, because that's what pilots do. We look like a, a, a sailor who's on land treating a rope with respect and coiling it up nice and not just throwing it in the bed of a truck. There are some unique things about being a Christian, something that we know with confession comes cleansing. So therefore, something that we do, we confess with great joy. And seriously, at the same time, we are serious about confessing because it brings great joy. We confess what others can feel. Christians talk about stuff, the inside stuff, that others conceal. That makes us very unique. That makes us stand out. It's, it, it's very different. And finally, what we feel. We feel great joy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't talk about this very often. It's kind of weird in our culture to refer to blood or death or talking about blood as a means of saying somebody died, they shed their blood. We take that very seriously. Yet as Christians, when we place our faith in the shed blood of Jesus, according to this passage, we receive cleansing when we confess our sins. And so we take it very seriously, but we also feel great joy. Three things by summary. Something that we know, that with confession comes cleansing. Something that we do, we confess what others can feel. And something that we feel joy because of the death of Jesus Christ, specifically his shed blood. It's the gospel. And so by way of conclusion this morning, there might be some of us who have always wondered, why do Christians get so excited, or why do they talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? There is a direct link to his death, the shedding of his blood, and our receiving forgiveness of our sins as we confess them. And so we take this very seriously, and it brings us great joy. For those of us who are men and women women of faith, maybe it's an encouragement to look back into the text and to see that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In your Bible, if you notice, chapter 2 begins after verse 10, but you can see that the thought is continued. So there's nothing holy about where the chapter divisions are in your Bible. So take a look with me, if you will, a little sneak peek at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, as the Apostle John wraps up his thought bubble about what it looks like to be in fellowship with God and His Son through the power.
power of the Holy Spirit with other men and women of faith. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He himself is the propitiation or the payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Why do we pass out peanut butter cups at a Halloween festival? Because we're hoping to spread the joy of our fellowship through something that is tangible and simple, so that when someone is ready to deal with the real stuff, they have an already an inkling of who the people of faith are in their community that are already reaching out in love. Why do we go out and be a part of what some could say is the darkest celebration of the year? Because that's where the people are who don't know Jesus. And if we're going to spread the joy of our fellowship, isn't that a good place to be? Yeah, with peanut cups, peanut butter cups, and princesses. You better believe it. We've been there for six or seven years, and we'll be there for six or seven more. Because there is great joy in our fellowship. What completes the perfect joy that God experienced before the creation of the world? Sharing with people who needed His presence. And so we're going to follow in that model ourselves. I'm going to pray this morning and encourage all of us to enjoy reflecting on this text for the rest of the day. I just said it. (laughs) I didn't even realize it. This text. Read your Bibles. If you'd like, the book of 1 John isn't that long. It's just a few chapters. You can read it devotionally easily in a week, and maybe that's something we can do together as we move throughout the rest of the month. Would you join me as I pray? Holy Father, the most serious things in our life are also the ones that bring us the greatest joy. Our relationship and our vows to our spouses, our children, even our workplaces, We take all these things very serious, and they also bring us great joy. Father, help us as men and women of faith to process the conforming culture of this fellowship, and help us to be very, very confident in our confession of sin, knowing that it brings us great joy, and it cleanses us as we go, as we're simply willing to talk about the stuff that everybody else wants us to take. Father, it's known to you. Help us to be transparent.